Howdy, is that coming through? Good morning, everybody. Really is good to be here. Any year, it's good to be in Europe, but particularly this year with all the travel restrictions and all that's gone down. For those who don't know me, uh, as Alex said, my name is Steve. I became a Christian when I was a little guy, five years old. My parents got radically born again just before they got married. And I'm so grateful to God for his intervention in their lives. When I was 18 years old, I did a one-year, kind of a gap year as an intern at our local church, was my previous church. And after that, started leading the youth in that church, came on to staff. So although I studied a commerce degree, the only paying job I've had has been in church paid ministry for 25 years now, which makes me feel very old just to even say that. But I'm really grateful for these partnerships. Being here again in Germany has just made me reflect on the people that I've known and met on this journey, some shared experiences that I've had with people in this room over decades. I met Eddie and Taya in 1998 in Los Angeles at some training that we were both invited to. 16 years ago, we spent three months in Crawley in England at James and Lisa's church. And I was so wide open saying, God, please send us somewhere in the world that needs the gospel. We're willing to go. My name's Jimmy. I'll take what you give me. And in Crawley, sitting one day having my devotions, God spoke to me so clearly about going back to South Africa and being planted in South Africa. And we're still there. We're now at another church. We're leading the team at our, our current local church. But thank God that he's guiding and speaking. Fred and Vanessa, we met 20-odd years ago. Um, Fred's at the back there interpreting as well. Now, over the past two years, I don't think there's been a more challenging time to lead anywhere, but especially in a local church. I don't know if I'm the only one who's felt like that. I have personally felt mentally exhausted. I felt very, very, very challenged. Often, in fact, I would say most of the time, it's felt like I don't have a clue what I'm meant to be doing as a leader. My best metaphor for leadership during this time has been the duck, which when it's on the water, appears calm above the surface. And I think that's a good thing that leaders should be trying to appear somewhat calm. But underneath, the duck is paddling furiously. And over the last 18 months, that's felt like what we've been doing at every change of lockdown level in our country, with all of the challenges that have come uh, in our church, we've only met in person for, I think, eight months of the last 18. So 10 terrible months, thankfully not in a row, but in spaces, talking to the video camera, broadcasting, driving home, thinking this was not what I signed up for. I enjoy being around people. Having said all of that, God has been really good. We've got some great testimonies to share. But it seems that people have had heightened emotions with all the uncertainty that's happened around us. I don't know if that's just in our church, but maybe it's in yours as well. I, I got this letter uh, sometime last year from a ex, now ex-church member who wasn't very happy. 
And I'm, I'm just reading you some of the highlights. Dear Steve, I regret that my wife and I will be ending our membership at City Hill. He incidentally sent this without his wife's knowledge. This is a long, long, long letter, but this is what he said in it. You're in danger of having no church when you eventually decide it's safe enough to return to meeting in person. May God judge you. Steve, to be plain, you are a coward. Another line, you hypocrite. Turn back to God, Steve. Repent. I'm quoting literally from this letter. And this is finishing in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say goodbye. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. Come to... So I'd like to talk today about leading in light of eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where I'd like to read from. I'd like to start in verse 1 and then jump down to verse 16. So in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. That phrase, we do not lose heart, he uses twice in this chapter. He says, through God's mercy, we don't lose heart. Remember, if you've read the book of 2 Corinthians, earlier on in the book, he writes a very heartfelt letter. The start to the letter, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware of the difficulty we faced. He said, we were under pressure from every side. He says at one point, we were under so much pressure, we thought it was beyond our ability to endure. He said, we thought we would die. We were under that much pressure. But then it's like he, he describes the theology that kept him going. In spite of all the pressure, he says, we choose not to lose heart. Jump down to verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, that phrase always stuns me when I read it. This is a guy who describes all his near-death experiences and he sums all of it up with this phrase, Light and momentary troubles. That's not because Paul was from a hyper-faith movement that had to declare the bad things good. No, it was in comparison to the rest of the sentence. He says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I'd like to share from this verse today three reasons to have courage, three reasons not to lose heart. Number one is God's mercy. I love the fact that Paul says here, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. I'm not sure that 
until recently I ever properly saw that phrase. He says, because of God's mercy, I don't need to lose heart. I don't get discouraged. His mercy is the attribute of God that gives us all of what we don't deserve. And everything we did deserve, he doesn't give it to us. His mercy is the only reason that we are forgiven, that we're adopted into his family. His mercy is the only reason that you and I get to lead in his church. This isn't because of some amazing work that we did, that God picked us to lead somewhere, somehow. This was because of his mercy. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Some English Bibles say by nature we were objects of wrath. I just want to let that phrase sink in. By nature, you and I were objects of God's wrath. That's what we deserved. According to God's righteousness and his laws, you and I would experience God's full, perfect righteousness by spending all eternity in hell. By nature, that's what we are. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He had no need to do that. He just wanted to. When was the last time that you and I reflected on God's incredible mercy towards us? I received this angry letter and other angry letters. I want to get angry in return. Say, God, I want them to be an object of your wrath. And then I reflect on God's mercy. That, that guy, he calls me a coward. In truth, I'm a far greater coward than he will ever know. I get more scared and insecure on many more occasions than I care to admit. And yet because of God's mercy, I'm made alive with Christ. In 2019, we had this amazing event happen in our lives where my wife had always wanted a third child. I'd never wanted a third child. When our second child got about this tall, she then spoke about adoption and I had no desire to adopt. And then in 2019, I was on a trip and she came across the story of a little girl who had been abandoned and they were looking for a family for her. She was six years old, name was Trinity. And 21 days after us hearing her story, she arrived in our home for her first night and she is now legally adopted as Trinity Wimble. Now, this has been a life-changing event for all of us. For the four of us, the originals, we call ourselves after she's gone to sleep, but the five of us, family. Before she arrived, we had no clue what to expect and what to do. With a biological pregnancy, you've got nine months to read the books and prepare yourself mentally, and you still don't have a clue. And she was arriving six years old. So we made contact with the child psychologist to say, give us some advice. How do we go about this? And this lady gave us very, very good advice. She says, one of the things she would recommend is her first night with you. All of you need to sit and as a family, invite her 
to join your family. She's got to say yes. Because the child psychologist said she'll probably change her mind at some point. Little did we know how often that would happen. I'm jumping forward in the story, but often we'd go out to people's house for supper. She'd go and play with friends. She'd come home, driving home. She'd say, I don't want to be in this family anymore. I want to join that family. So her first night with us sitting on the floor of her new bedroom, one of our boys leaves his room, went into my little study there, and she gets her new bedroom. Jackie buys all things in pink, which we've never had before in our home. And we sit on the floor and with tears in all of our eyes, say to her, we want you to be our girl. And these big boys now, my two sons, they say, we want you to be our sister. And then I say to her, do you accept? And she, she's a little overwhelmed. She's a dinky little thing. She's overwhelmed and she just nods and says yes. Now, in her mind, between then and now, she chose our family. She thinks that she picked our family to live in. Well, she said yes. So when we go to visit friends, she's got a little friend who is down the road. That friend has a dog. We don't have a dog. And because of that reason, she decided she wanted to join that family. Now, when she arrived at our home, she just had all her belongings in one little suitcase smaller than a carry-on bag onto an airplane. Her entire world in one little suitcase. She could no more have chosen us than a fish can learn to fly. We chose her. We'd weighed up the costs. We'd considered it. We'd spoken to our boys. We'd all agreed. God had spoken to us. We're doing it. But in her mind, she chose us so she can also leave us. This is just in her first year. She doesn't say this too much anymore. Because of God's mercy, he picked me. Because of God's mercy, he rescued me from my abusive father, the devil, and adopts me into the best family in the world. And in that family, there's occasional disagreement. We don't always see things eye to eye. People say silly things and I do silly things. And then I think to myself, but it's okay. I chose Jesus. I'm going to stick it out here. Christ chose me because of his great mercy. He didn't pick you and me because we had anything to offer him. He'd have far fewer problems if he didn't pick me. But because of his great mercy. And I, I know I'm preaching to preachers this morning and talking to leaders, but this is a reminder that we aren't here because we somehow picked. I know we all made decisions, but the original picking was God picked me. And he chose me in his great mercy. And because of that, I'm made alive with Christ. I don't have to do this. I get to do it. The second reason from this verse that I get to have hope and courage is this inward renewal that Paul talks about. He says, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I'm so grateful to God for his inward renewing of strength and energy. 
The last 18 months, I've felt so weak on occasion, so tired. And one of my best ways of talking with God is just to go for a walk. And so often that walk starts off with me internally with my head down, and I'm talking to God about my problems. Father, this person and that and this decision, and I can't, and... And my return journey is so often inside my head up, God talking to me about his solutions. My boy, come on, it's not that bad. You can do this thing. Let's go for it. I remember one morning last year, again, it was like every two weeks or so over a period of time, our lockdown levels were changing and every level was very difficult for us to navigate. It was like doing church totally differently every time. And one morning, I was so anxious. We had an elders meeting later that day, and we had to figure it out, and everyone had a different opinion. And no one, none of us knew who was right. We'd never been this way before, and I'm just head down, God, please help, please talk, please. And I just felt this calm voice of the Father into my, this inward renewal, this part, to say, my son, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. You could pick any one of three options and it's okay. It's my spirit that's building the church. From that prayer, I literally sit down at my desk and I have a Bible reading plan that has got three bookmarks that moves through the Bible and I just rotate them through. And my bookmark for the day is on Zechariah chapter four. I'd forgotten when I were open to Zechariah that verse six of that same chapter says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Man, I got up from reading, feeling like I'd been eating tiger steaks and drinking gunpowder soup. God is with us. I still don't know what we should do, but God has said it's by his spirit. I think every one of us could tell story after story of just how this inward renewal has kept us going day after day. Paul says in Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give strength to you and my mortal body. If you've arrived here tired, my prayer for you that this equip would be a time of refreshing, renewed courage and renewed hope. Paul's light and momentary troubles often included being in jail. I've thought about this so much in the last 18 months. An apostle means sent one. And instead of being the sent one, he ends up being the stuck one. And yet, some of the most impactful work that Paul did was letters that were written while he was stuck, outwardly stuck. We are quoting from those letters now. Perhaps... When we look back over the chaos of the last 18 months, some of the most productive ideas that we'll have going into the future came through the feeling of being stuck. I'm reflecting on some of the ideas that we've put into action that have had more fruit than many of the other things we did pre-pandemic lockdown because God is unlimited. He's never stuck. And then the third and probably biggest idea in this text Reason to have courage is eternal glory. He says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. I saw this analogy used. I wonder if someone could help me just pull the rope out that way. So this is not an original analogy. Thank you. You can just put it on the ground. But if you could imagine that this rope went on miles through that window, represents eternity. And this little section that's taped here in the front represents your life and my life. And there was a day that we were born. None of us had control over that day. And where the white tape becomes the rope, that's the day of my death. God appointed in the future. And I have no fear for that day. But on this tape, in that space, I get to live out the life, the gift that God gave me. And Paul looks at this life in light of that one. And he says, the troubles that I've had are small compared to the glory that's coming. I might have been shipwrecked. I might have been thrown in jail. I might have survived the pandemic, lockdown, whatever is coming. The funerals that you and I have done, the heartache that we've been through, the cost of making decisions to follow Christ every single day. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Listen to what he says. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen, the white tape section, that's the temporary. But what is unseen, the gold rope section, that is eternal. I'm saying this as a reminder to us today, but I also want to say it as a well done. It's been a funny thing, but over the last 18 months when we've had guest speakers come in, when I've reflected on their message at the end of the Sunday, I've said to my wife, you know the one thing I wanted to hear them say? was just well done. There is literally still a church, even though the letter said that there wouldn't be. Thank you, Lord, in spite of us. And I want to say today, if I could pass on, and I'm, I'm not pretending to be the mouthpiece of God in everything I say, but I want to say a well done this morning up front. Every single message you've preached, every single bit of counsel and love and care you've given out, every single bit of private prayer that had no apparent public result, well done. Well done for pitching up when others didn't, for holding the line when others were losing their heads. Well done for keeping going and not giving up and for just taking the next step forward and for just doing the next right thing. My guess is that the reason most of us are in this room today is because there's been some part of you that has consistently looked forward to eternity and said, this is not as good as it gets. What I do here is an investment into the lives of others for all of eternity. 170 years ago, a group of poor German farmers and church people felt so strongly that God was calling them to go to elsewhere in the world that they got hold of a ship and for three years, 1850, 1851, and 1852, traveled out this missionary society aiming for Tanzania and Zanzibar, the sultan of that area wouldn't allow them access. So they ended up settling on the east coast 
of the bottom of Africa and started these little missionary settlements. Some of them went as preachers, but a whole lot of them went as farmers and tradespeople to financially support the preachers. From the Lüneburger Heide here in Germany, I think of them climbing onto that ship, saying goodbye to everything they've ever known, knowing they'll never see it again, not via Skype, FaceTime, no photographs, telephones, climbing on the ship because of the call of Jesus with eternity ahead. Those are my great-great-grandparents leaving these shores to come to Africa. And 170 years later, I'm so grateful to God that I have a family heritage. Not every person in the family line, but a family heritage of men and women who said yes to the call of God. They had no idea during their short little piece of rope That little piece, they had no idea of the eternal ramifications. And yet, 170 years later, one of their great-great-grandchildren has the privilege of standing in Germany, speaking in South African English, sadly not German, but being able to share word of God there here. Now, we're not doing this, I know, for the praise of men. We're not doing it for the sake of people. But we are doing it for Jesus Christ, who is worthy of it all, and far more than we could ever give. And so, in light of Christ's sacrifice and in light of eternity, we've got no idea the impact that our actions here will have on other people's futures and on our descendants and what things turn out like. Matthew 25, 21 Jesus gives us these amazing parables that have this familiar ending of the master's, that's the master's call right there. Just say, well done. But he tells us these stories to let us know what's waiting for us. If we are the good and faithful servants. If during this short segment of time, we live with eternity in mind. And so, Jesus ends off by saying, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. For me, there's three great things that are waiting for you and I personally. If we live in light of eternity from this verse, first of all, it's the master's praise. It's his promotion and it's pure joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Out of all the things that we should be living for, it's that praise. We can have people high-fiving us. We can have people criticizing us. Ultimately, it's not about that. But the master, Jesus Christ, telling us, well done in this life, but well done in the life beyond. Both of my parents that raised us in such a godly home, both of them have passed away. There's a little bit of me that envies them having heard those words themselves. One day we'll all be reunited because this is such a short little blip of eternity. Not only his praise, but his promotion. You have been faithful with a few things. What, whatever the big things are that you and I think we're doing in this life, they're the small things compared to the life beyond. Who knows what that promotion looks like, but it's there. And then I love this, come and share your master's happiness. 
it's worth reminding ourselves that the most painful moments we have here will be absolutely forgotten when we experience this eternal pure joy of His. I'm sure you, like me, have had some moments that when you were in them, you weren't sure that you could cope, where the pain and difficulty seemed overwhelming. And Paul gives us some of the secret to keeping on not giving up, not losing hope, is in light of eternity, in light of Christ's return, and in light of the fact that this short little life counts so much for what happens in the next one, let's not give up. Let's not see the things that you and I are doing as small or as insignificant, but let's be full of courage, full of hope. Then God, take my little life and your life and the next little, all these little segments as the overlap and use them for your glory somehow. We don't deserve a single thing, but because of your mercy, you inwardly renew us and there's eternal glory that awaits. We are truly the most blessed people in the world. We have amazing reward here, but the real joy awaits all of us.